Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Good to see you again, Brian. We're making our way through the Ten Commandments, and I think we've got a big one to talk about today. Well, you know, I'm looking at the Ten Commandments, and I don't see anything that says that thou shalt not stand up for your rights if you're a trucker. And you're up there in Idaho, and see, so you're not too far from the Canadian border. Is that affecting you at all? I don't know, but I'm at least I'm looking at truckers with a newfound respect. I almost feel like for some of them, I need to say thank you for your service, you know, for their willingness to stand up. Absolutely. And anyway, I saw a poll that I was very pleased to see that showed some 59%, I believe it was, of Americans support what the Canadian truckers are doing. And we're seeing some really draconian measures coming down from the Trudeau administration on this, but maybe this will result in a toppling of the liberal government up there. And Anyway, pleased to see also that Alberta, which is just north of you, and Alberta, of course, has been the conservative bastion in Canada, just kind of like Idaho and Utah, Wyoming have been the conservative bastions in the United States, but that they have ended some of these mandates, and pleased to see that. Well, looking at the Ten Commandments again, you know, there's a story told that a little girl was in Sunday school, and anyway, her Sunday school teacher asked, Mary, can you think of any of the Ten Commandments that might apply to how you treat your parents? Well, honor thy father and thy mother. That's right. That's very good, Mary. Now, Mary, can you think of any commandments that tell us how we should treat our little brothers and sisters? Mary thought a moment. Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure big sisters and big brothers have faced that temptation from time to time, but let's look at this commandment. You know, we saw at the beginning of this study on the Ten Commandments that different religious traditions number those commandments in different ways. The Jewish numbering begins with the command, I am the Lord thy God, and says that's the first commandment. The Catholic and Protestant traditions have said that, no, that is not a commandment, that's the introduction. The first is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then the Protestant tradition generally has been that that's the first commandment, and the second is thou shalt not make a graven image. And the Catholic Church has, on the other hand, combined those together. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, nor worship a graven image. And so that means from there on, as you look to the way the Catholic Church and most Lutherans have listed the Ten Commandments, The commandment that we're going to look at here, thou shalt not kill, is in their tradition the fifth commandment, whereas in the Protestant and the Jewish tradition, it's the sixth commandment. So you'll hear various people refer to it by number, and 
that's one of the reasons why I've always suggested if you're going to have a Ten Commandments monument in public, don't number them one through ten. Just list them and then let the viewer insert their own numbering to it. But looking at this commandment, I'm going to give a religious text from the Bible here that not going to be from Exodus or Deuteronomy, but it definitely has a bearing on this. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus said, well, you know, I think maybe I'm going to go back to verse 13, actually, to get this in fuller context. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot by men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a close vessel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are saved by the grace of God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and we receive that by faith. But as Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Good works, or rather faith, is accompanied by good works. And so our testimony, our light that shines before men, is very important. But now let's go on in verse 17, because here we're starting to talk about the law. Think not that I, that is Jesus, am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. You know, there are some who think that the Old Testament law is something you can forget about today. And Paul, in fact, says in Romans that we are not under law, but under grace. But Paul does not mean by that that the law is something we can forget about, that it has no relevance today. What he means is that, number one, we're not under the condemnation of the law because Christ has died for our sins. And number two, that we are not under extra-biblical law, that is, all those other commandments that the Jews had in the, in the Talmud and the Mishnah and so on. But, and number three, that we are not under law just as literal obedience. We look to the meaning of it as well. But he doesn't mean that the law has no relevance. The law today serves as a guide for conduct. It also serves as as Paul says in Galatians, as our schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. It shows us our sinful nature, shows us our need for salvation, and therefore drives us to the foot of the cross. So the law is still relevant today, and Jesus has just said in the passage we just read that till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. These are the smallest letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Not just not one word or one sentence or one commandment, but not one jot or tittle, one letter shall pass away until all be fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So he's telling us we want to follow the law and to do that as a testimony before God and before men. However, there's something else here. If you're wondering now, who do I look to? If I want to follow the law, well, maybe I can't study this as thoroughly as some people can. If I want to study the law, whom do I look to for an example? Well, you would think the ones to look to would be the great students of the law there at the time of the Old Testament, at the time of, as to say, at the time of Jesus. The Pharisees, they were like the lawyers of the day who understood biblical law and followed it to the letter, or the scribes who were kind of like the super lawyers. They were the ones who were the legal scholars of the day. You would think that they'd be the ones that we would look to as the example as to how to keep the law. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 20, For I say to you, that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. No, they're not the model. you got to exceed them, or you're not in any way going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to say, ye have heard that it was said to them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, and whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. What he is saying here is that there is a much higher standard than just simply refraining from the physical act of killing. That's what the Jews thought. But there is much more than that, as we're going to see after the break. Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law and still making our way through the Ten Commandments, in particular this time around talking about the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. All right. Well, we just saw that passage there that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. What Jesus seems to be saying here is if you're angry with your brother, not that you kill your brother physically, but if you're angry with him, and again, when he says brother, we don't get into really a definition of what he means by brother here, and maybe that's all people, or something beyond just a physical brother probably, but anyone who is angry with his brother is going to be in danger of greater judgment of God than any human court can impose. You know, 
The court can't punish you for being angry. They can punish you for what you do when you're angry, but it's not for being angry. But it goes beyond that. And then he goes on to say, whoever says raka, and raka means an empty or worthless person, calling your brother an empty or worthless person, is in danger of the council, which probably means in danger of the Sanhedrin. That was the great high court in Israel at the time. A judgment for voicing anger, that was punishable. If you voice anger at somebody, that could be punishable. And then, whosoever says, thou fool. Now, that's a step further than rakha. As I say, calling somebody rakha, that's calling them an empty or worthless person. But calling somebody thou fool, in Hebrew thought of the time, that went beyond just an insult. That was an open reviling. And this person was in danger of eternal judgment. And maybe even hellfire. Anyway, so... As we see, the commandment goes beyond pure killing. Well, what does it include? Let's take a look at the words then in Exodus itself, thou shalt not kill. And the translation, some of the more recent translations, which will say thou shalt not murder. Actually, those are probably more precise. When the King James says thou shalt not kill, that's not wrong, but it's not not as precise as it could be. Thou shalt not murder is more accurate. And the Hebrew word that is used here is the word ratzak, which means an intentional and unjustifiable killing of a human being. And when we talk about killing in war, there is a different word used, katal or haurag, and that's not the word that is used here. Likewise, in the New Testament, when we see the command, thou shalt not kill, repeated in the New Testament, the word that is used there is the word phonel in the, in the Greek, which means murder, versus other words that are used for killing in war, like apoktino or svato. So it includes all intentional and unjustified killing of humans. And that includes, clearly, the killing of unborn children. You recall... We talked about this before, but when Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, is at least six months pregnant with John, she comes into the presence of Mary, who is carrying Jesus in her womb. And Elizabeth says, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. First, she's using a word, brephos, which is the same word that is used for babies already born. And secondly, she describes that baby, John, in her womb as showing a very human characteristic, leaping for joy in the presence of Jesus. And then in Genesis, going back to the Old Testament, there we read concerning the brothers Esau and Jacob that the children struggled together in the womb. You know, they were rivals throughout their lives, Jacob and Esau. And the characteristics that they show in the womb, struggling with each other, those are characteristics they show through most of their adult lives. And a passage that I find very significant is Psalm 51, where David says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, he seems to be saying here, not that there's anything sinful about 
his conception. Rather, he is saying that he had a sinful nature, and that sinful nature went all the way back, not just before birth, but all the way back to his conception. And if you have a sinful nature from conception, it just seems to me you can't have a sinful nature without being human. And so that means personhood goes all the way back to conception. And so the command, thou shalt not murder, applies to babies in the womb and therefore applies to abortion. As you know, we have two cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, Dobbs versus Jackson out of Mississippi and another out of Texas. And there's a good probability that by this June, the Supreme Court will issue an order that either overrules the infamous Roe versus Wade decision, which legalized, constitutionalized abortion, or if not, will greatly modify it. And so we're keeping that in our prayers as we look to particularly the uncommitted justices like Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh and Roberts to see what they decide. What the command does not include, though, is killing in time of war. We've already seen that that is a different word. We certainly see soldiers throughout the Bible. Abraham, as he engages in a daring commando raid to rescue his nephew Lot from the kings who had kidnapped him. Gideon, who rescues his people in battle and is emerges as a great military leader. David and King David, of course, was a soldier throughout his life. Nehemiah, who goes back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and has his men well-armed and protection. The centurions, the one in whose home his servant was healed and of whom Jesus said, Verily, I say unto you, I have not seen such faith, no, not in Israel, or the centurion, in who Cornelius, in whose home the first Gentile church was formed. So we see that killing is more is sometimes justified. In fact, in Numbers 32, you recall that's when the Hebrews are ready to enter the promised land, which is controlled by the Canaanites, and the tribes of Reuben and Gad say to Moses, you know, we'd like this country on the other side of the Jordan that we've already taken, and we'd like that to be our inheritance. Moses said, what, shall your brethren go to war, and ye sit here? And they say, no, that's not what we mean at all. We'll go to war. We'll help you conquer the land. All we're asking is, once the conquest is complete, then we'd like our portion to be this land east of the Jordan. Moses said, fine, if, that's, if you're willing to go forth armed with your brethren, then that'll be your portion. But he said, if you don't, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You've probably heard that text quoted time and again in sermons dealing with alcohol or sex or other things like that. Most people don't realize in context, you have sinned against the Lord and your, your sin will find you out. In context, that is dealing with the sin of refusing to fight for your country when called upon to do so. Another thing the command does not include, according to the Bible, would be executions. In Genesis 9, verse 6, we read the words there, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, 
By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. In other words, he's not saying life is cheap, and therefore we're going to kill people who commit crimes. Rather, he's saying, if you take a human life, that's going to be the punishment, because human life is precious. And Christians might disagree as to capital punishment today, whether it applies, but it seems to be authorized by Scripture, not only in the Old Testament, but in this age as well. to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network We're with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, continuing our exploration of the commandment, Thou shalt not kill. Well, let's look to what a few others have said. Matthew Henry, one of the great commentators on the scriptures, said the Jewish teachers had taught that nothing except actual murder was forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. They explained away its spiritual meaning, but Christ showed the full meaning of the commandment. And I think Luther gives us a very good explanation of what Christ is actually saying, especially in the passage that we read there, who shall hate his brother, who shall call his brother a fool, who shall call his brother a worthless thing, and so on. That what we're going to find as we look to the commandments as a whole, as Luther explains them, particularly as he explains them in his large catechism, is that the opposite of killing is not abstaining from killing. That seems like a strange statement, but let me repeat it. The opposite of killing is not abstaining from killing. The opposite of killing, rather, is affirming the sanctity of life. Luther says, for example, that the entire sum of this commandment is to be impressed upon the simple-minded most explicitly with what is the meaning of not to kill. In the first place, that we hurt no one with our hand or deed. Then, that we do not employ our tongue to instigate or counsel thereto. In other words, encouraging others to commit murder. Further, that we neither use nor assent to any means or methods whereby anyone may be injured. And finally, that the heart may not be ill-disposed toward anyone, not from anger or hatred, so to wish him ill, so that body and soul may be innocent in respect to everyone, but especially in respect to those who wish you evil or actually commit such against you. For to do evil to one who wishes and does you good is not human, but diabolical. In other words, it's devilish to be cruel to somebody who is being kind to you. But we're supposed to even go further that we are kind even to those who are not being kind to us. He goes on to say, secondly, secondly, it is to be observed that not only he who does evil to his neighbor is guilty of violating this commandment, But now get this part. He also who can do him good, anticipate, prevent, defend, and save him, 
so that no bodily evil or harm happened to him, and yet does it not. If therefore you send away someone that is naked, when you could clothe him, you have caused him to freeze. If you see one suffer hunger and do not give him food, you have caused him to starve. So the opposite of murdering is not just simply refraining from the physical act of murder. It's doing that which is positive to ensure that people don't die unjustifiably. So also, if you see anyone innocently sentenced to death or in like distress and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. If you know that babies are being unjustly aborted and you don't do your part to stop that, fighting for the right to life in the courts or in the legislatures or just in speaking out against it among the people you know and so on, you're violating the commandment if you don't do all that you can possibly do in order to promote the sanctity of life. And it will not avail to make the pretext that you did not offer any help, counsel, or aid thereto, for you have withheld your love from him and deprived him of the benefit whereby his life would properly have been saved. Likewise, God also properly calls all those murderers who do not afford counsel and help in distress and danger of body and life, and will pronounce the most terrible sentence upon them in the last day, as Christ himself has announced, as he shall say in Matthew twenty-five forty-two, I was in hunger, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not, and in, sick and in prison, and you visited me not. That is, you would have suffered me and mine to die of hunger, thirst, and cold, would have suffered the wild beasts to tear us to pieces, or left us to decay in prison or perish in distress. What else is that but to reproach them as murderers and bloodhounds? For although you have not actually done this, you have nevertheless, as far as you are concerned, suffered him to perish in misfortune. It is just as if I saw someone struggling in deep water or fallen in the fire and could extend to him the hand to save him and pull him out and yet refuse to do so. Would I not appear even in the eyes of the world a murderer and a criminal? Therefore, it is God's ultimate purpose that we suffer harm to befall no man, but show everyone love and all good. This is special reference to our enemies, for to do good to our friends is but a miserable heathen virtue, as Christ declares it. Thus we again have the word of God, whereby he would encourage and urge us to truly noble and sublime works, as gentleness, patience, and, in short, love and kindness to our enemies. And would remind us ever to reflect upon the first commandment that he is our God, that he will help and assist to protect us. Thus, he may extinguish the fire of revenge in us. This we ought to practice and inculcate, and we will have an abundance of good works to do. But, well, you can see the essence that he's saying here. He'd even go so far as to say that if your neighbor is under attack, and you are able to come to your neighbor's defense, and you fail to do so, then you're violating this commandment. 
This command, in other words, doesn't just command that we not kill. We take affirmative steps to defend life. In other words, fighting to defend somebody's life is not murder. It is the exact opposite of murder. It is protecting human life. Well, we see then that this command, thou shalt not kill, means a lot more than what we previously thought. It means more than we just don't physically kill people. And the courts have cited the commandment repeatedly. We had a case, for example, of a man who, in Gilbert versus Florida, he killed his wife and claimed it was a mercy killing. But the Florida Court of Appeals said that euthanasia was not a defense to first-degree murder in Florida. And Judge Glickstein noted in his opinion, the Decalogue states categorically, thou shalt not murder. It draws no distinction between murder by members of the middle class or murder by members of an underclass. It draws no distinction between murder by a family member and murder by a stranger. It draws no distinction between murder out of a misguided compassion or murder for hire. In matter of the case called John, John Storer, called a profoundly retarded, terribly mentally ill adult who, whose mother wanted to decline further treatment on his behalf. But the Supreme Court of New York and the appellate division upheld their right to a decline treatment. But in a strong dissenting opinion, Judge Cardamon wrote, the circumstances here transcend mere statutory and constitutional views and lead inexorably back to the author of the natural law from whose foundation all law is derived. The imperative of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill, is reflected in the beginnings of the common law. As Blackstone observed, the law of England wisely and religiously considers that no man hath power to destroy life, but by commission from God, the author of it. Our founding fathers enshrined the document the doctrine that life is an unalienable right from the Declaration of Independence. There is but a short step from a mentally defective patient's right to die to his duty to die. So again, we're seeing some very strong protections that the courts are providing on this matter of the right to life. Now we have a case that is going on right now in the Air Force. It is an Air Force officer who has declined to take the vaccination because she has religious objections to it. They have denied her exemption. And just a couple of days ago, a federal judge in Georgia ruled in her favor. And noting what we had said in our amicus brief, he says something very similar in his opinion. He notes that the Air Force had granted many religious exemptions and medical exemptions.
Welcome back to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. This is our fourth and final segment today with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you were talking about a case involving the Air Force. And I'd like to hear more yes, about that. Yes, we've had a couple of cases involving the Navy, and I've mentioned those before. In both of those cases, one in a federal district court in Texas, the other in a federal district court in Florida, the judges in those cases at the district court level have entered preliminary injunctions against the Navy and prohibit the Navy from taking action to discharge or otherwise discipline various Navy personnel because of their objection to getting the vaccine and their objection was based upon religious grounds. And now the most recent, just a couple of days, days ago, is a decision by Judge Self, a federal district court judge in the Middle District of Georgia. Judge Self, interestingly enough, identifies himself as having been a former Army artillery officer. And so he has some knowledge of the military. He has some understanding of military necessity. But... He makes the observation, which I think is a very interesting one here, concerning the concerns that we sometimes have about the judges getting involved in military matters too much. He recognizes that military officers need to determine matters concerning military discipline and that It is not proper for a court to always step in and say the military is wrong when military says they have certain things that they need for purposes of military discipline. But he says that's not limited. He says, judges don't make good generals. But by the same token, it's a two-way street. Generals don't make good judges, especially when it comes to nuanced, constitutional issues is that simple. Whether a defendant's COVID-19 vaccination requirement can withstand strict scrutiny doesn't require military expertise or discretion. Such an issue is a purely legal matter, well within the confines of what the Constitution permits of the judicial branch and its duly appointed judges. In other words, this isn't a matter of what military discipline does and does not require. Now, The court noted that, and as we filed an amicus brief in this case, we had pointed this out, and a lot of what the court said seemed to be very similar to the arguments we had made, and we'd like to think we could get some credit for that. But partly what we had argued was, number one, that the evidence right now, even evidence from the CDC is indicating that The effect of vaccination is simply to lower the symptoms of COVID, that it doesn't do much, if anything, to prevent people from getting COVID, and it doesn't do much to prevent them from spreading it. It only reduces the symptoms. That being the case, the reason to compel somebody to vaccinate is only for their own good, not for the good of somebody else. You're not benefiting anybody else. You're not preventing the spread to anybody else. You're only making the symptoms less for yourself. Now, when 
the purpose of government in issuing a regulation is to protect people from the consequences of their own decisions, then that becomes a much less compelling reason than if they were protecting others from being infected by me. And anyway, the court noted in this case, as we had pointed out, that the Air Force had granted several thousand medical exemptions, in other words, exemptions from the vaccination to people who presented evidence that they would be likely to be injured by the vaccination, maybe because they'd had reactions to other vaccinations in the past or had a heart condition or tendency to blood clots or something like that that might make them more likely to suffer adverse consequences or administrative exemptions, a couple thousand administrative exemptions would be granted. Those who, for one reason or another, it wouldn't be feasible for them to get the vaccination, but that they had granted out of several thousand religious exemption requests, the Air Force had granted precisely zero. Now, the day after a hearing took place, February 3rd, the day afterward, the Air Force granted nine. And the judge, in this case, wasn't particularly impressed by that. It was obviously that they had done that simply to try to confuse matters. But at any rate, the Air Force was insisting that military necessity requires that everybody be vaccinated. And you can't really run a military operation without it. But as Judge Self noted in his opinion, he said today, 97.8% of the Air Force is fully vaccinated. That leaves plaintiff within a very small percentage of unvaccinated Air Force service members, of which 1,476 have been granted medical exemptions, and another 1,837 have administrative exemptions. Like plaintiff, these exempted service members also exercise preventive measures, such as getting tested, wearing a mask, social distancing. And then he says, and this I think is possibly the key sentence out of the entire opinion. It seems illogical to think, let alone argue, that plaintiff's religious-based refusal to take a COVID-19 vaccine would seriously impede military function when the Air Force has at least 3,300 other service members still on duty who are just as unvaccinated as she. The only difference is that plaintiff is unvaccinated because she followed her religion, and the others were either granted a medical or administrative exemption for receiving a vaccine. Anyway, so the point of the matter is, how can the Air Force argue, or the Navy or any of the other branches argue, that military necessity prohibits them from granting religious exemptions when they are already granted thousands of medical exemptions and thousands of administrative exemptions. We argue that. The judge simply notes the same thing in his opinion. And I love the way he began his opinion. He said, your religious beliefs are sincere. It's just not compatible with military service. That's about as blunt as it gets. And that is how the plaintiffs, the Air Force's, the chain of command had paraphrased 
why she was being denied a COVID vaccine exemption. But anyway, here is the conclusion, finally, what the judge finally says in the last couple of paragraphs. All Americans, especially the court, want our country to maintain a military force that is powerful enough to thoroughly destroy any enemy who dares to challenge it. However, we also want a military force strong enough to respect and protect its service members' constitutional and statutory religious rights. This ruling ensures our armed forces continue to accomplish both. The court grants motion, plaintiff's motion for preliminary injunction. Defendants are enjoined from enforcing the Department of Defense military mandate, the Air Force military mandate, and the Air Force military order against plaintiff. Defendants are also enjoined from taking any adverse action against plaintiff on the basis of this lawsuit or her request for religious exemption, specifically including forcing her to retire. Finally, plaintiff is relieved from posting any bond. Now, where this is going to go from here, we don't know. The Air Force may appeal this, as the Navy has appealed the similar decisions involving Navy personnel. And as the plaintiffs in the Navy cases have done, when they have sought to expand this to include not just their own plaintiffs, but to have it apply Navy-wide, in this case, the Thomas More Society, who was representing the Air Force officer, may seek to expand this to apply it Air Force-wide. I'll simply say for myself, I'm a retired Air Force officer, and I served 23 years as an Air Force lawyer or judge advocate, retiring as a lieutenant colonel and then colonel in the guard after that. I love the Air Force, but I also love the men and women who wear Air Force blue, and I believe they are entitled to the protection of the Constitution that they have taken an oath to support and defend. That's what I'm saying here, and that's what Judge Self has said as well. So we're going to see where this goes, but it looks like we're doing quite well in the courts as we challenge the military requirements of vaccines. This is different from other vaccines. It has religious objections that have been raised. It is less tested. There are more adverse consequences, and hopefully the courts will see this in the end.